Welcome back to the Word on Fire show. I'm Brandon Vaught, the host and the content director here at Word on Fire. Got a great episode for you. We're gonna learn about a new book that a lot of atheists are raving about because it includes a new method for creating atheists. Um, we're gonna hear what Bishop Barron thinks about this method. We're gonna talk through some of the ideas in the book. So look forward to that. Before I begin though, I'd like to welcome Bishop Barron. Bishop Barron, good to see you. Hey Brandon, always good to see you. Hey, you just returned a day or two ago from a big trip to Franciscan University oh, yeah. of Steubenville. Why were you there? How did it go? I was there for their baccalaureate mass, their graduation, and they were nice enough to give me an honorary doctorate, so I was delighted to receive that. Uh, it was the vigil of the Feast of the Assumption, so I was able to celebrate mass and to preach on that wonderful uh, feast. So I enjoyed it immensely. In the morning, I taped a show um, you know, with Dr. Scott Hahn and with Regis uh, Martin, who's taught there for many years, uh, Father Dave Pavanka, who's the um, president. And we, we discussed my book now from over a year ago, The Letter to a Suffering Church, so the whole clergy sex abuse scandal, the McCarrick situation, all that. But it was a wonderful, I thought, conversation. Uh, lunch that day I had with um, the Crosbys, père et fils, as they say in French, the uh, John Crosby, the elder, and then John Henry Crosby, his son, both of whom were very involved at in Steubenville with the Von Hildebrand Institute. And we had a wonderful lunch. It was in a kind of anteroom off the cafeteria, so nice and quiet, just the three of us. And we talked epistemology, metaphysics, Von Hildebrand, Aquinas, the problem of evil. Um, th this issue, which I find intriguing, because Thomas you know, gives the Augustinian account of evil as a privatio, right, a privation of the good. Von Hildebrand thought that was accurate as far as it goes, but not adequate to explain the fullness of, of what evil means. And so we, we were knocking a lot of that around, and it was just a real stimulating conversation. Uh, then I had breakfast the next morning with um, Scott Hahn before I went to the airport. So it was just a kind of intellectual feast for me and a great joy to be there. Well, today we're going to be talking about a new book I mentioned in the intro. It is titled A Manual for Creating Atheists. So a pretty provocative hmm. title. Yeah. It's written by a man named Peter Boghazian. I think I'm saying that right. He's a philosophy professor at Portland State University. And the book outlines what I would describe as anti-evangelization or talking people out of their faith. So how do you have conversations with friends, family, even strangers on the street and talk them out of believing in God? Hmm. Um, the book is, I think, a little old. It was maybe a year or two ago that it was first released, but as soon as it came out, it cracked the Amazon top 100, meaning hmm. top 100 most popular books in the world, sold out of the first printing, even during pre-orders, second printing in two weeks. There was a big Washington Post interview with Peter, the author, um, and he says some things we've heard Bishop before from some of the other new atheist types. For example, I'm, I'm quoting him here. He says, faith is an unreliable reasoning process. It will not take you to reality. So we need to help people to value processes of reasoning that will take them to the truth. And elsewhere in the interview, he compares reasoning people uh, out of their belief in God to treating drug addicts. He says faith is a virus, and so we need to cure people of this arrogance. virus. Yeah, what's your what, what's your initial take on some of these quotes? That breathtaking arrogance. Uh, I mean, and the the insouciance with which, uh, with which those statements are are uttered to me is just incredible. And from someone, is he? You say he's a philosophy professor, right? Uh, the, the ignorance of the grand sweep of the intellectual tradition. Because what that represents, Brandon, is a sort of popularization of a very narrow construal of Enlightenment-era epistemology. 
But the claim that knowledge is reducible to uh, the kind of scientific method or the empirical method, the, the breathtaking ignorance and arrogance because it overlooks so much of the intellectual tradition that is not uh, accessible through such a narrow, restricted um, epistemological method. So anyway, that, that's just my first. And then, you know, just the hugely significant figures in just the Western tradition, from Paul to Augustine to Aquinas to Bonaventure to Mozart to Bach to Descartes himself, to who were Newton himself, who were religious believers, and that all these people are just what's the language he's using there? They're like drug addicts. They're just caught in some opium den of of illusion and so on. The, just on the surface of it, the the arrogance of it to me is is staggering. All right. So in not this that new I book. have strong feelings about this at all. <laughs> so you like the book, is what you're oh, saying? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I'm just hearing about it from you, but I mean, just that kind of statement is so baldly ignorant and arrogant that it's just uh, it's just upsetting. Okay. So in this book, he outlines what he describes as a novel approach to drawing believers out of this addiction, this virus that he calls street epistemology, street epistemology. It's sort of this set of tactics that allow you to have conversations with people who believe in God and sort of talk them out of it. The main way he does this is through a form of Socratic dialogue that challenges people's faith by asking them a lot of questions. And this model of street, uh, street epistemology has gained a huge following in the atheist community. You see this term pop up in basically every major atheist book since then. Whole websites devoted to it, their whole YouTube channels devoted to people putting it in action, filming themselves going out on the street and talking to strangers and convincing them that God doesn't exist. Um, so what I want to do here, Bishop, is uh, talk through the steps involved in this street epistemology and get your thoughts on them. Okay. Uh, I'm taking these from the website streetepistemology.com, so I can't think of a more definitive source, and they kind of group the process into 10 different steps. So let's go through them. Step number one is to just build rapport with your interlocutor. It says, build rapport with your interlocutor before getting into deep dialogue, try to find something you have in common, Taking the time to do this cuts through much of our natural, instinctive anxiety about immediately engaging with a stranger. I'm assuming you'd be totally fine with that, right? Sure. That sounds like a good basic rule for any kind of conversation. Sure. All right. Step two, identify the claim. Now, it says you may already know what your interlocutor's claim is. For example, you may have initiated the discussion because you overheard them saying they believe in God or they believe in UFOs or the supernatural. Um, but once you're actively looking to practice street epistemology on someone, you need to take the step of moving from idle chit-chat to the worthwhile claim. Most people practicing street epistemology are focused on religious claims, so the common claim is something like, God is real and the Bible is true. And so they're encouraging you to ask the other person, is this what you believe? And this reminds me, Bishop, of something you've often encouraged, like make sure that you're clear on what the other person believes and that you're not just strawmanning it or coming up with a weird distortion of their belief. Yeah, I mean, fine, fair enough. But I'd also want to make sure that you're talking to at least some really well-read, well-informed Christians. I find very often with this sort of thing, Brandon, it's people talking to maybe sincerely religious people, but who are utterly incapable of defending their faith intelligently. And so therefore you do end up knocking down a straw man because they're, they're just maybe not skilled in that area. They're not, they're not uh, trained in the 
in the apologetic or theological tradition. So I would encourage the street epistemologist to make sure he's not just talking to any old religious believer, but making sure he sits down. How about with some philosophy or theology professors too? How about some experts in apologetics to make sure this is not just a one-sided conversation? You know, zooming out a little bit on this topic of street epistemology, it does strike me, as you say, that a lot of these methods are meant to be used against believers who are mostly naive about their faith. Maybe they believe in God because of personal experiences or the way they were raised, but they can't articulate good reasons for their belief. And so um, this philosophy presser is encouraging his fellow atheists to target, identify and target these naive believers and convince them that you really don't have any good reasons to believe in God, so you should just give it up. Yeah, and that's just unfair. You know, I mean, fair enough. You, you want to engage anyone, I suppose, but uh, let's be a little fair about it and make sure that um, you're taking serious religious people under consideration. All right, I'm going to skip ahead over the next couple because they're pretty straightforward. Step three is to confirm the claim. So ask the other person, do I understand you correctly that you believe blank? Step four is to clarify definition. So once you understand what the other person believes, make sure you guys agree on the same term. So if they well, say, go ahead. Can I just jump in there? Because as, as you know, many, many times atheists think that we think God is some item within the universe. And so I find often clearing that point up is extraordinarily important. So there's this and there's that, and I go up in space and see these items, and I I don't see God among the items in the universe, which is precisely what God is not. And so, sure, clarify the definitions, which I think would help the atheists understand how pointless many of their questions are, that they're going after something that serious religious people don't believe in. So let that cut both ways. All right, let's move into steps five through 10, because this is really where the meat is of this process. So that's kind of basic preliminaries. Uh, But here's where we get into the meat of it. Step number five, identify a confidence level. So I thought this was interesting because it's not just engaging the arguments in and of themselves. The street epistemologist first wants to get the other person to give a number on a scale of zero to 100 that identifies how confident you are in that belief. So they might say, you know, you believe in God and you trust the Bible, yes. How confident are you in that? Scale of zero, like not confident at all, 100%, meaning I'm absolutely certain. Where do you fall on that scale? Do you think that's a good metric? Is that valuable? Is that meaningful? What do you think about that? Go back to Newman on that. Uh, The first thing is a two quoque move, is that practically everything we believe is to varying degrees of probability rather than epidictic certitude. There are a handful of things that we we know with epidictic certitude, certain mathematical uh, givens, etc. But the extraordinary majority of those things that we hold to be true, we do so on the basis of degrees of probability. And that includes all the sciences. Think of, of how much we know because of what we've learned from a tradition that we ourselves have not verified. So how sure are you of, now fill in the blank, or look at history. 
How sure are you? Give me a percentage, you know, that Julius Caesar really, you know, was killed on the Ides of March in 44 BC. Well, yeah, based on a, really the handful of sources we have from that ancient time, all of which could be uh, uh, deceptive, etc., that were carried by a tradition that might have changed the stories. And see, once you start down that path, everything we believe, everything we know, is always known to varying degrees of probability. You know, so in a way, it's trying to put religion in as this, oh, it's this uniquely unsure sort of thing. Well, I mean, the whole range of what we know really falls under that kind of heading. And to me, Bishop, it seems like zero or 100 is pretty easy to identify, and we almost never have that level of apodictic yeah, certainty or doubt right. about something. But then in between that, how do you even begin to distinguish like a 65 from a 70, you know, right. like a 50 from a 70? I, I don't even know where, where you begin there. Right. I mean, how sure are you of, of your, even like your, wife, your wife's deepest uh, convictions and beliefs and so on? Well, I mean, any couples will say that we become more mysterious to each other as we move through life, you know? The, the, this fantasy, see, of 100% apodictic certitude that's an enlightenment fantasy, that the light of reason shines, and then the things that I clearly see, that's what I believe. Gosh, almost none of life is like that. Almost none of life. This is, now go back to the critics of the enlightenment. Go back to people like Goethe and others. Uh, Pascal comes to mind, you know. Is, is, it's such a narrow range of things that allow themselves to appear in that kind of brilliant, bright light. Most of the most important truths that we know are known in the in the twilight. They're known uh, in in a fleeting way, you know. So I'm going to resist right away this tendency to distinguish sharply between the clarity of the sciences and then all this obscurity of religion. That's a false, phony dichotomy. All right. So that was step five to identify <laughs> a confidence level. So the, this, how fond I am of all these steps. So go ahead. <laughs> So the street apologist, he's, he's asking you what you believe about God. You admit you believe in God. He asks you how confident you are on a scale of 0 to 100. You give him a number. Step six is for him to identify the method that you used to arrive at that confidence level. So the advice says, ask your interlocutor how they have determined that their belief is true or how they arrived at their stated confidence level. They may provide multiple reasons, but try to focus on just one or two, ideally those that contribute the most to their confidence. Um, for it's example, typical, go ahead. <laughs> it says, for example, you might settle on, quote, a powerful personal experience as their primary reason for believing that God is real. But whatever it is, you want to identify the main reason that explains their confidence. How come you married your wife? Give me the one reason, the one you're most count. Give me the one reason why you married your wife. I, I mean, I can't imagine a husband ever doing that. It's because it's not true to life. John Henry Newman taught us, right? We not just religion, mind you, but everything that we believe is, in 99% of the cases, based upon a conjuries of hunch, intuition, experience, sense verification, uh, witness of others, uh, theoretical speculation, all of which contribute to this move of the mind when we say, I assent to that truth. It's a typically enlightenment fantasy, and it goes right back to people like Descartes. Let's find la méthode, right? Let's find the method. I'm always wary of that from Descartes on. I got an immunization from reading Descartes as a kid against the method. I found the method. There is no such thing 
we come to know in such a complex way that that attempt to reduce it will always try to box you into a very narrow space. Unless it corresponds to la méthode, it's not true. Nonsense. There, a pox on your method. See, I say whenever I hear a method coming up, a pox on your method. We, we know in such a richly variegated and complex way, and not just religion. We do indeed know religious truths that way, but, but across the board, scientific truth, psychological truth. Um, because trust me where they're going with this. I, I haven't read the book, but I know where they're going with it. They're going toward some scientific reductionism, right? If you have to verify it empirically, you got to form hypotheses, you got to do an experiment, you got to verify the experiment, and that and only that corresponds to what's real. A pox on that. That, that illumines an aspect of reality. I'm completely in favor. I love the scientific method, but it is... Do not force me into that little narrow space. Uh, and that's what all these, that's all these people from, from the early atheists on are trying to do. And I'm resisting that. Um, you know, here's an example, Brandon. Sorry, I'm, I'm ranting here. But these, these things bug me. These kind of books bug me because young people get drawn into this stuff, you know. Uh, during COVID, I don't know if you've noticed this, the great Patrick Stewart, now age 80, has been doing a sonnet a day. Right? He's reading a Shakespeare sonnet every day in that beautiful, mellifluous voice of his. Right? Well, I've been sort of caught up. I am addicted to it. So I always check them out every day. And they're short. It only takes like a minute or so to read the sonnet. But he reads it. And um, you exult, of course, in the beauty of the language. You exult in the intricacy of its composition. You, know, you exult in, in the beauty of his voice reading it. But, but, if you're the least bit sensitive, you also exult in the truth that's being conveyed to you by that sonnet. A genius like Shakespeare, not just a literal, an artistic genius, he was that to be sure, but also he was a, a teller of the truth about life, about the mind, about love, about relationships, about God, and it all comes through in those sonnets. Now, None of those sonnets can be analyzed according to the scientific method, but yet they are bearers of the truth. And I, I, re I resist any method that's going to tell me, oh, that doesn't bear the truth. No, no, no. Those sonnets of Shakespeare, they, they're beautiful, I guess, and they're literarily interesting, but they don't bear the truth. Nonsense. They do, just as Plato bears the truth, even though he's not a scientist. Right? Just as Bach bears the truth and Mozart bears the truth, though they're not following the scientific method. And so religion, which is a close cousin to art and poetry and so on, religion bears a truth that cannot be reduced to the scientific method. Okay, end of my rant for today. <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of leery of bringing up these new atheist <laughs> topics with you, Bishop, because I feel like we're going to have to put a heart monitor on you no, but get you going. Because it's because young people are being influenced by these people, and it, this is not a trivial matter, because you and I both know that they're being led away from the faith by these simple-minded, superficial um, uh, so-called epistemologies. But go ahead. One thing that strikes me, Bishop, at this point, it's worth, it's worth talking about, is how this approach differs from the approach that you propose in your book, Arguing Religion, which is, let's talk about the arguments for whether God exists or not. Mm -hmm. When you focus only on the epistemology, you're getting into these questions about 
how confident am I in this knowledge? How do I know this? And it's sort of avoiding the more fundamental question of ontology. Yeah. Does God exist or not? Yeah, but like epistemology is exactly. interesting, but it's not ontology. Yeah, but you see that in the movie he's making is he's immediately moving religion into this kind of subjective realm of, well, I guess you've had these feelings that tell you this is true, where he, I'm sure, I'm dealing with the objectivities that the sciences can verify. Come on. Come on. That's a typical sleight of hand of a lot of the atheists, both old and new, is to push it off into the subjectivism. When indeed, as, as you well know, there's a very rich intellectual tradition around arguments for God's existence, which are making an appeal rationally, but not scientifically. There's a distinction there. Don't reduce it to the scientific. They are rational warrants for belief in God. And it moves out of the somewhat murky realm of my little subjective feelings, and it moves into the realm of the objectively uh, verifiable. So uh, is there a word about that? Is there, ever, is there a section on the arguments for God's existence? I'm just curious. Not as, far, not as far as I'm aware. In fact, when we get down to step 10, which we'll get to in a second, it seems like the goal isn't necessarily to arrive at some shared truth about whether God exists, whether yeah. the Bible is trustworthy. It's to help people to become more confident and justified in their beliefs, whatever they are. So we can shake hands and part amiably, even if we don't find the truth together. Um, that bothered me a little bit. Uh, okay, let's, let's keep moving through these, and we'll hit these last few ones pretty quickly. So step six, what we just talked about, was to identify the method uh, that was used to arrive at, a, at their confidence level. Step seven is to ask questions that reveal the reliability of that method. And the explanatory note says, your main tools here are the Socratic method, the outsider test of faith, which I'll mention here in a second, and questions that revolve around the falsifiability of their claims. Um, so for the outsider test of faith, they give an example. They say, if a Hindu woman had a similarly powerful personal experience that convinced her that Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva were real, would that be good evidence that she was correct? And presumably the other person would say no, and the street epistemologist would then say, well, then that's not good reason for you to believe in God. What do you think about this outsider test of faith strategy? It's silly, and it's a false dichotomy. Uh, in fact, in the last program, we mentioned this. Uh, is there something like a generic spiritual experience that a Hindu and a Christian might both have, a sense of the sacred? And might a Christian at the very early stage accent that according to Christian doctrine, a Hindu according to Hindu doctrine? Yeah, sure, of course. I'd expect that. But there's much, much more to making a claim like the Trinitarian God is real versus a claim about Hinduism. In other words, it's not reducible to one little subjective experience. That could be ingredient in it. Sure, that's part of the that conjuries of, of, of uh, causes to religious faith. But don't reduce it to that and then say, oh, well, there it is. You know, you say Vishnu, you say God, so you're both equally right, equally wrong. You're both crazy. No, no, no. That's one element, perhaps, in the whole process by which I come to religious faith. Um, so, see, look at the subtle move there, though, is they're determining the question. They're saying, oh, clearly the only way you could possibly affirm this is on some little subjective experience. No, it's not. There's a whole range of things. And how about we talk about that, smart guy? How about we mention some of those? See, put him on his heels a bit. This whole thing is designed to put the religious person back on his heels so he's always fighting a defensive war. Don't play that game with them. Don't let them play that game with you. 
So last few steps, uh, step eight, listen, summarize, question, watch, repeat. So just recap the conversation. Step nine, wrap up the conversation and (laughs) they give a good question to ask at the end, which is given the things that we've talked about, do you think that your confidence level has changed? Do you still feel that 100% is accurate or whatever they said, or is it perhaps lower? And then step 10 is to part company Amiably, and and he gives some good advice on Fine, what yeah. what success looks like yeah. in this these street epistemology what conversations. Um, so one, the interlocutor feels the exchange was enjoyable, positive, and valuable. Good. good. Uh, two, you successfully induced at least one instance of aporia in the interlocutor. Uh, three, both parties express a desire to talk again. Good. And then finally, and I think this is his primary goal a marked change in your interlocutor's self-reported level of confidence. So I think for an atheist employing this strategy, the goal is to approach a Christian, probably a fairly naive Christian, and get them to leave less confident about their faith than before. But Bishop, as you and I have talked during and before this episode, this whole strategy, which is essentially a Socratic dialogue, could equally be applied in the other direction. We could equally go find a naive atheist who's never read a book on the arguments for God, who's never heard the brightest minds explain why we believe what we do, and get him to question his his atheist commitments and have his confidence in God go up and his confidence in atheism go down. How do you explain a contingent universe? So maybe plant that little aporia in the mind of, of an atheist. Why do you believe in objective moral values? Explain that to me now in detail. Why you think objective or moral values are objective? Uh, there's all kinds of ways that the Christian can plant, should plant aporia in the mind of the atheist to get him or her out of that sort of cocky stance of you know I got the answers and and I want to put you back on your heels. No, if it's a real dialogue, you know, let's go right back to Plato. You, you want to have a real dialogue. Well, then, you know, both parties have to be open to being put back on their heels. This is a very aggressive, I know it sounds, you know, friendly and let's end on good terms and all that's fine. You know, I'm obviously in favor of it. But it's all predicated upon, clearly, I'm the one that knows what's going on here and you're a poor soul and I got to put you back on your heels and make you less confident. No, if you're really interested in dialogue, you got to go in thinking, you know, I might come out of this less confident. Uh, unless and until you're willing to do that, you're not a real dialogue. It's a manipulation. And so this, you know, street epistemology, it's not Socratic. This is a manipulation. Is I'm trying to manipulate you into my point of view. So I don't buy that at all. I mean, let, let them be put back on their heels too by a smart Christian. Well, it's time now for one of our questions from our listeners. We love hearing from you guys. You always have amazing questions. Today we have one from John in Texas. He's asking for some book recommendations by one of Bishop Barron's former professors. So here's his question. Hi, Bishop Barron. It's John from Texas. I was wondering if I want to start reading Monsignor Robert Sokolowski, who taught you at Catholic U, where should I begin? Thanks. Yeah, good. Thank you for that. Uh, I begin with a book that uh, he was teaching our class. This is many years ago when I was just a kid. He was teaching our class. He had the notes for this book, and it's called The God of Faith and Reason. Uh, I think it's the one of the best books, actually, in philosophical theology that you can read, period, and the best way to, to get into his thinking. I'd also recommend his Introduction to Phenomenology. He introduced me to that that famously complicated philosophical system when I was a kid. And this book came out 
Brandon, not that many years ago. I'm going to say maybe 10 years ago. Um, but it's really good. If you're interested in the tradition that produced Edith Stein, Dietrich von Hildebrand, Karl Wojtyla, um, Max Scheler, a lot of these players came out of the Husserl tradition. And Sokolowski gives a wonderful introduction. Also, his book on the Eucharist, is it called, what's it called, Brandon? Uh, Theology of Presence. Yeah, Eucharistic Presence. And then it's I'd a, say, study, a study in the theology of disclosure. That's right. Okay, good. Those three, I would say, would be a very good way in. Excellent. Well, thanks for the great question, John. If you guys have questions, please send them in to us at askbishopbaron.com. That's where you can record your question on any device. We mentioned last time that we just received this large grant from the John Templeton Foundation to start producing video courses, short videos, and even a national conference on faith and science all through our Word on Fire Institute. So if there weren't already enough reasons to join the Institute, here's another one. Uh, learn more at wordonfire.institute. When you sign up, you get access to a ton of amazing courses from some of the top evangelists, philosophers, theologians in the church. You get access to all of Bishop Barron's films and study programs. We mail you our journal. We mail you free books, all sorts of great stuff. So visit wordonfire.institute and sign up today. Well, thanks so much for watching. We'll see you next time on the Word on Fire show.